I've entitled this talk Double Vision, the capacity to see in two directions at once. That may sound a little strange, but in a sense it's a carry-on from what we looked at last week, um, a follow-on, a restatement, an enlargement of the thing that we call dooby-dooby-doo. And going into the next couple of weeks, I want to make both aspects of that a little bit more practical. So it's all part of one thing. And I want to begin by reading from Matthew 28. Matthew um, ends the gospel with this phrase, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The thing that Matthew wants to leave in the minds of the people who read the story of Jesus is not that he's dead and gone and resurrected and who knows what's going on. He wants them to have a clear understanding that Jesus is still present and active. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we've said something on this before. But reading that, people will be made aware again of what we see in Matthew 18, verse 20, where Jesus has said to the disciples, where two or three are get together in his name, there he is in the midst of them. That he is present. He's actively present in that particular moment. And so we may have said this and heard this many times, but I want to reiterate the fact that we, there is never a moment, there is never a time or a circumstance where Jesus is not present in some form or another. Then we move to John's reading of the last night of Jesus' time with his disciples, that period when they break bread together and he institutes what we know now as the Lord's Supper, and he speaks to them, and then he prays. John records this in part of what he says to them. I will. Uh, this is John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Now there's a resonance. No one would be able to read that or hear that without knowing that there is this double thing of Jesus and the Spirit being with us, um, that the Father has made provision for us not to be alone, not to be left, for his presence to be real and powerful with us, that he may be with you forever. And then we take a step further into Acts chapter 1, where Jesus uh, is with the disciples and he's just preparing to leave what we call the ascension and he says go and wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit the power comes on you to be my witnesses and what we need to recognize is that that presence that power of the Holy Spirit is to functionally enable us to be witnesses to the person and work of Jesus, to who he is, what he says, and what he does. That we are called not just to talk about it, to, but to live it, to embody all that Jesus is and was and says and does in the way that we live. And so this process of presence and power is for the purpose of 
a lived theology, a lived faith, a lived expression, incarnation as we call it, in fleshing who Jesus is and what he taught in our own lives. And so this process of dooby-doo, being and doing and doing and being, this rotation, this uh, circular thing of uh, um, a journey inward and a journey outward, this active presence but present action. And I come back to this double vision thing and say it's the capacity to look at in two directions in the one moment. We are looking to God. We are, in a sense, journeying inward to that sense of presence and power. But at the same moment, with whatever is before us, the person, the circumstance that is before us, the capacity to see what is in front of us and respond in the way that Jesus does, the two sides of the coin, being and doing. Now, I want to take us back to a 16th century woman who wrote uh, some of the most amazing stuff, but who, who not only wrote and experienced what it was to follow Jesus, but, but lived in a way in the, in, the, in the teeth of some real opposition. I'm talking of Teresa of Avila. She lived between 1515 and 1582. And in her day, it was quite novel and really um, unusual and, and even controversial that a woman would instruct and teach and point the way as she did. 16th century churchmen uh, reckoned that women were more um, open to being led astray and had to, because they were naturally less intellectual, it was called, and they had to have their minds carefully occupied in times of prayer. They shouldn't be open to God, as Teresa was uh, suggesting. And that they should have structured prayers and um, be controlled by the men in their lives. She had an even more severe problem in a sense, in that not only was she a woman who was um, perhaps shaking the boat quite a bit, um, we'll come to that in a second, but... She also came from a Jewish family, a fairly well-to-do Jewish family. And at that stage, uh, the Jews in Spain were um, received with a fair amount of hostility and discrimination. After the reconquest of Spain by the Christians from um, the sort of grip of the Muslim princes into the 15th century, um, the Spanish church wanted assurances more fierce than any other time. That's why the Inquisition was essentially birthed. Um, purity of race, purity of faith. Um, those who converted were often converting under duress and were regarded with deep suspicion, constantly investigated by the authorities. Um, and in fact, the Inquisition was primarily set up to deal with the problem of converted Jews who secretly reverted to their ancestral religion. So you can imagine the kind of circumstances that she lived under. Add to this that she was really unwell. She spent three years at one stage paralyzed because of what happened to her. And so 
what we're looking at is not someone who had just a life of ease, but uh, who had to her share of, of some of the really most difficult things that she had to face. By the age of 16, she decided that rather than get married, she would, be, she would go into a convent. Uh, she went into an Augustinian convent at that stage, and at 20, she went into a Carmelite convent, which was uh, quite a lot more strict. But even then, she demanded higher standards for herself and for those around her. Uh, in the last, I think it's about 20 years of her life, she actually set up about uh, 17 convents in the face of all this kind of opposition. At one point, and we won't uh, uh, labor too many of the dates, but at one point, her Dominican confessor made her write her autobiography because they wanted to have a look at what she was thinking and saying and experiencing so that they could point the finger at her. So she wrote a story of her life as she understood it and how God had led her, the visions that she had. Um, and I, it's, it's difficult to actually put into, into words, but basically what happened was that manuscript was confiscated. Um, later on, she uh, wrote The Interior Castle because it covers some of the same ground as her autobiography, but the, the Inquisition didn't ever give that back to her. So what I'm trying to do is, is set the scene for a, um, a context where it wasn't just um, all smiles and easygoing. There were huge barriers to cross. And the, the point that I want to make uh, through looking at her life and looking perhaps at the um, book that she wrote, The Interior Castle, is this the marriage that she managed, and there's many other things that we could look at, her, her issue of uh, simplicities and friendship and prayer, but it's it's this the interior uh, castle, um, perhaps her seminal work, um, is a book uh, about the maturing process that uh, Thomas uh, Dubai wrote. He said this: we find both in prayer and in the rest of the of life this maturing process, for the two cannot be separated. What Teresa does in the interior castle is she marries these two things in the most remarkable way. And this is a, is, is um, part, part of her genius in the life of the, 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 the development of growth of the church. The, uh, this thing of both the prayer and the rest of life being held together and not separated, being both contemplative and activists, being both uh, uh, journeying inward and journeying outward. So the interior castle is set up like this, that um, we grow through praying and loving through seven stages. And these seven uh, stages, which are often called um, mansions, which is not all that helpful, but they are like places, stages, uh, ways along, along the route, and our soul, our lives are seen as this vast, complex uh, building with various different rooms in a castle built of transparent crystal. At the heart of the castle, through all these labyrinths, is the place, the center 
where the king, the light is, and that's what we are moving towards. And this is the kind of map to the center that she offers and she sets out to offer. Now, she says, the only way forward is forward. You can't stand still. If you stand still at any point and think I've got it sorted, then that's an infallible sign that you are in trouble. And I like this about what she says. Um, because we are habitually not in tune with God, the impact of God upon us will be disturbing. We are so unaccustomed to God's presence, basically is what she's saying, that, that we will be disturbed. Um, I, there's, there's a short little essay that um, Rowan Williams wrote in response to uh, C.S. Lewis's um, book on um, A Grief Observed. And in it he says this, the implication is also that God cannot but continuously shatter your images of him. That's quite profound because really God is always taking us beyond. What we know, what we understand, there is always more because God is way more than we can even begin to think or ask or imagine. His love is so vast. Who he is is beyond our comprehension. We have just a tiny splinter of light, a glimpse of what he's about. What Teresa is saying through the interior castle is that it's when we move towards God in this way. Holiness, she says, is not necessarily in extraordinary or, as we would say, worship experiences, but in the capacity to live in this world completely centered on God. And so it's that sense of being able to look in two directions at the same moment, the double vision, the sense of being in tune with who God is in terms of prayer and contemplation and meditation and a sense of his presence and power, but in the reality and the nitty-gritty and the sometimes suffering of the present moment that we find ourselves in. And in a sense, that's what she says is discipleship. That's what holiness is actually about. It's not some sort of esoteric thing. And it's about essentially us doing what is important and required of us in the current moment. Now, last week we read the passage from Mark about uh, Mary and Martha. And in a sense, she ends the whole of the interior castle with uh, um, the last couple of pages looking at the fact that Mary and Martha join to welcome Jesus. And as I said last week, we've, and, and this, is, this is where I get it, is that we have split off Mary and Martha and we prefer Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus to Martha serving. And what, what she is saying is that both of them in, um, welcome Jesus into their home. It's, it's that we need to learn that the both things, the, the devotion sitting at his feet and the serving um, at, at, the, at the table are part of the entire process, that being Christian is one thing. It's being present in the world with God at the center of all our experience. And it's from that center that we go out. It's from that sense of who God is, his presence with us, 
that we move forward into the words and acts and deeds of our own life, our witnessing. This contemplation, this prayer, this devotion is steadily learning how to move towards that center, who is God. But at the same time, at the very same time, turning to the world that God himself loves, for God so loved the world. So this double vision is not blurry. It's the clarity that we have to see in both directions at the same time. And that's what we call to. That's what incarnation is. That's what lived theology, lived faith actually looks like. Our lives become the pattern. In other words, we become little Jesus wherever we are. We come into this moment, this presence, this situation, and we grow into what God has for us in that particular place. That's what incarnational theology is. That's what incarnational life is, lived theology. So let me come back to the passages we started with at the beginning. I am with you always, says Jesus. There's never a time when two or three of you together, but whenever, I am with you always. And that he gives the Spirit to us, the paraclete, the comforter, so that he may be with us forever. And this presence, this active presence, this power, is so that we can be present for action. So that we can be witnesses, that we can incarnate who Jesus is in the life that we have, that no one else can do. So, two questions. Are you conscious of God's presence, of God's power? Are you conscious of it now, or are you conscious of it all the time? And secondly, how do you nurture that awareness so that you can be present in the situations that you find yourself? Two questions. Let me end today with what is known as the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let me sow faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. Where there is sadness, let me sow joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in forgiving that we are forgiven. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God bless you. See you on Sunday.